The Athletic. Toby Football Show. It's topical. It's tropical. It's today's special heat wave edition. Transfers. We put our underwear in the freezer. It's still not as frozen as Man United's De Jong deal. Still, like us, United are looking fresh down under. We'll be hearing from Australia on their pre-season tour. Elsewhere, things are heating up. Big Lev off to Barcelona. We'll be hearing about that and the return of Berlusconi and his Bonza Monza. We'll also discover why the Soviets took three managers to World Cup 82. And we'll check out the quarterfinal lineup at Euro 2022 as England prepare to face Spain. All of that and more coming up in this Totally Football Show. Monday, 18th of July. And on Totally Football Show today, we've got Matt Davis Adams. Hello, Matt. Hi, James. Also with us, James Horncastle. Good day to you all. And tremendous Slavic meat shield, Sasha Gurianov. Scorcho, James. Yeah, indeed. So it is hot, Sasha. You're not wrong. Uh, delighted to tell you, listen, that everyone is wearing clothes, but I think we've all got fans running. Is that right? Yeah, we can only see the top halves of each other on the Zoom. <laughs> so we're going to take this on trust. Do you want to see my bottom half? <laughs> Do you not trust James that much? Hmm. Listeners can see it now. Yeah. Uh, hello to you all. Uh, James, you and I bumped into each other at the airport the other day. You were going for a wedding in Bordeaux. Yes, James. Yeah. How was that? Um, it was uh, pleasant, yeah. It was, it was hot. It was the temperatures that we're experiencing now. Um, yeah. So it's been good, good preparation. Some Armagnac as well. Okay. Uh, what were you wearing strong. for the wedding? What, what what were people dressed in? Were well, they wearing I, bottoms? I was I was lucky, James, because um, shortly after we saw each other, mm. uh, my wife and I we boarded the boarded the plane. Yes. And we were like, this has gone very smoothly so far, um, yeah. and then realised that uh, I'd left my suit behind. Huh. Um, so luckily, I just I just got to do the uh, got to do the wedding in a in a shirt and some sort of chinos so you know i mean it's, it was everyone was very envious of me I so imagine. there you I go imagine yeah well i guess they knew what they were getting themselves in for wedding in bordeaux mid-july hey eh? have you got any tales of the heat matt sasha or should we just move on with the football I'm just thinking of Bordeaux now. I went to see a football match there once and oh, Johan yeah. Gourcuff in his one season of greatness yeah. uh, scored this absolutely unbelievable goal. Turned Were you to the penalty of the box. Yeah. It was it was a derby, it was Bordeaux Toulouse. Um two one I think it finished at the old stadium. Well old stadium that's I think now used for rugby. And uh, it was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. All right. Matt. I have nothing to offer on Bordeaux, the football club, uh, or the town, I'm afraid. All right. What have you got to offer on Euro 2022? Let's find out that next. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Here's a bit of music as I round up what's happened since the last time. England beat Northern Ireland 5-0 to put their place in the quarterfinals. They'll be facing Spain, who squeaked past Denmark in front of Sasha. That game's coming up on Wednesday, that quarterfinal. Germany, who with England are the only other team yet to concede at this tournament, are also through to the knockouts. They'll be playing Austria on Thursday. Sunday brought Group C to a close. Sweden and Netherlands going through. A Sweden who sealed top spot in the group with a 5-0 victory over Portugal, who had a tremendous tournament, if not in their results, then in their hearts. Sweden will be facing the Group D runner-up, which will be either Iceland, Italy or Belgium. That game will be on Friday, while on Saturday, the last quarter-final, we'll see France against Netherlands. All right then, Matt Davis-Adams. Mm. England-Spain... This Wednesday starts the knockout stages and it's back in Brighton. Woof. Yeah, it's um, it's a fascinating game. It, sort of contrasting fortunes for these two at the tournament in terms of England, everything that they hit goes into the net and Spain have been really kind of ponderous and wasteful of, of opportunities that they've created so far. So it's going to be interesting to see if that pattern continues, England haven't faced any adversity whatsoever, really, in the tournament so far, other than the fact that Serena Wiegmann wasn't able to, to take her place on the touchline on Friday night for the game against Northern Ireland at St Mary's. And, and we'll wait and see whether she produces the two negative COVID tests necessary to get her back with the team for this game. Obviously, you'd think that that will have a fairly sizable impact on the match. 
But I'm interested to see what happens if England come under a bit of pressure because it just hasn't happened in the tournament yet. And, and that's going to be a real test for them, I think. Whether Spain are capable of that or, or whether England will find it more difficult not having as much of the ball uh, as they have done in the previous games. But I'm kind of looking for reasons why England won't win the game and, and struggling to find them, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Sasha, have you got any reasons? You've just seen Spain. I've seen Spain twice, actually. I've seen them against Germany as well. Uh, two very different games for Spain because, obviously, against Germany, the, um, the keeper, Sandra Panos, uh, gave away a very cheap goal early doors. And Germany retreated into a 4-5-1. And Spain tried to put them under pressure and kept going, uh, to be fair, to the very end. But as Matt said, ponderous. And like from what I saw, they were overplaying it. Uh, every pass was a couple of seconds. Every like incisive pass was a couple of seconds too late. So, and also, they were very um, easily caught out on the break, I thought, by the Germans, uh, including one of them. I think, I think it was Paredes, or one of the centre-backs, should have been sent off for a foul on Pop. Uh, so I wasn't particularly impressed with them in that game. And against Denmark, it was really hard to judge because, you see, Denmark had to win the game, uh, yet they set up as a 5-4-1. Spain kind of weren't really sure how much to commit or not, yet they controlled most of the ball. And I think they were pretty much content to control most of the ball. And finally, last 20 minutes, Denmark tried to open up a little bit and and they get hit by a nice counter, a very nice, very nice header um, in the closing stages. So, But looking overall at Spain, they look a bit twee to me. So I think England will probably win about 3 or 4 nil. Look, a, They look a bit twee? Yeah, like there isn't really... There is... Uh, there doesn't seem to be that much substance. Much they don't seem to be able to create that much danger from what I've seen so far. Uh, yeah, it, it just you look the game against Germany, and Germany looked like a much more, much more serious side somehow. Even though this Spain team, okay, minus two of its best players, um, are still good competitors, but Germany I think looked a level above. And against Denmark, it, it was as I said, it was hard to judge. But I, I, I look at the goalkeeper Sandra Panja. She came under pressure against Germany, and she panicked and she gave away goals. Uh, the centre backs again against Germany didn't deal with any pressure particularly well. So I think if England basically go full pelt to them for about twenty minutes, I think Spain will crumble. Mm-hmm. Spain's other result, the opening game of the group, saw them defeat Finland 4-1, which obviously was a bit better. They are the only team that has stopped uh, Wigman's England scoring in their last 17 matches, a 0-0 draw that they had uh, back in February. But that, that was interesting, James, because maybe in anticipation of the fact that they were going to meet in this tournament, Serena Wigman picked essentially a B team for that match. And, and I wonder mm-hmm. if that was, you know, in part not to give anything away uh, for this game. And yeah, they stopped England scoring and they're actually ranked higher than England. You know, in, in the FIFA ranking, Spain are seven and England are eight and, and Sweden, France and Netherlands all still in a higher than England too. So and Germany. So, you know, we, we can kind of get a bit carried away. But you have to, given the football that England have played so far and also, as we've spoken about before, the Strength in depth is, is ridiculous. You look, you look on Friday night, they made a triple substitution at half-time, bought on Alessia Russo, who scored one of the goals of the tournament, and then another, Ella Toon, who got an assist. And, and these are players who have been on the periphery of the tournament so far, but the fact you can make five substitutions in it just means that there's so much quality in every position for England to call upon. And obviously Spain don't have that with the two uh, notable absentees. So everything points towards an England win, and we know how that usually ends. <laughs> 13 goals scored in the last two fixtures for the Lionesses. Are tickets still available for the Amex? Is it completely sold out already? I think I didn't see them available yesterday. Um, right. I did get a special email uh, from UEFA saying, as a Germany fan, would you like to buy some tickets for Germany-Austria? Okay. And I went, yes, as a Germany fan, I very much would. Um, and the tickets are only £10. Um, so I think if anyone has any opportunity and there is a game up the road, I think... From the matches we've seen so far, most of them have been quite engrossing, even if, like on Sunday, the favourites eventually run away. I think there is enough quality there. I mean, at Brentford, for example, um, they've been playing in front of a full stadium, so 16,000 at every game. Created very nice atmosphere, again, very mixed crowd, um, a lovely place to watch football. So I'm going to be back there again on Thursday for my £10, uh, minus my bike, because uh, I went on Saturday to meet my friends at the Express Tavern, which is just off Kew Bridge. Thought, ah, I'm going to take my bike around the post here, lamppost for ten minutes, uh, for about half an hour. I uh, came back half an hour later, there was no bike. Uh, so sad, sash, sad yeah. sash. Uh, but be careful, guys, uh, with your bikes. Right, what kind of bike was it, if anyone's seen? It's, 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 a, um, it's, a, it's a giant. Um, it's, it's really quite nondescript. You know, personally, I wouldn't really steal it, but right. uh, maybe it was just uh, too big to pass by. Um, I don't know. I see. Were you, are you sure it was that lamppost? Uh, it was de- definitely that lamp. I've checked a few lampposts. In fact, there was a exact, almost exactly the same bike just across the road, tied up in exactly the same way, and it was still there. And I was like, why didn't you go for that, thief? 
And that uh, wasn't in a very your bike. Way. Listeners are wondering. <laughs> yeah, it definitely wasn't. You weren't disoriented by your half hour in the. Anyway, I'll move James, on. I'm half an hour in the pub. I, th- I think you're overestimating my capabilities. All right then. Ben says it seems like there've been a lot of headed goals in this women's Euros. There have been. Has there been more that the, the men's equivalent? Is that common in the women's game? Uh, and if so, why do you think that is? I was watching the games, and I haven't watched them all, but the ones I've seen, I think it feels that the fullbacks for most of the teams don't seem to be that great defensively. Um, there's a lot of shape loss, for example, at a Norway against um, England would be the best example. And I think maybe they offer the opportunities to get the ball in the mixer, and I think teams, when attacking, tend to see weakness there, particularly for some reason on, on the right or, you know, at left-back position. Um, maybe it's just a coincidence of the games that I watched, but I just don't think the fullbacks have been very good. Wow. Uh, Spain's fullbacks will be facing the mightiest attacking force in these Euros on Wednesday. We'll be reviewing that in Thursday's Totally Football Show. But next up, I'm a gog for some hot transfer talk. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Listener, how's James Horncastle doing? Let's throw this one to him. Khalidou Koulibaly, now confirmed as a Chelsea player. And he was breaking in the early hours of Saturday morning. What do you think, James? I think that Chelsea gets probably the best defender in Serie A. Um, someone who has won the Defender of the Year award a couple of years ago and can do everything. Uh, you know, when I think of Koulibaly, I think of these kind of swashbuckling runs from, from out of defence, bringing the ball uh, into midfield and beyond. Um, someone who came very close to leading Napoli to, to win the league for the first time since since 1990. I think a lot of Napoli fans remember the goal that he scored against Juventus at the Allianz Stadium, which uh, made the Patinope believe that uh, it was going to be their time. Also, in a classic kind of Italianism, uh, gentle giant. <laughs> Um, in in that you know he's been an exemplary professional whilst he's been at Napoli, you know someone who you know Spalletti kind of quite pointedly said is the best player he ever coached. Remember he coached Francesco Totti, um, kind of fell out with Totti, but someone who would you know go away on international duty with Senegal uh, and would come back, not even stop off at home to drop a bag off, go straight to straight to training, straight to the dressing room, find out how everyone was doing. What uh, what they were going to be getting on with, etc., and for that uh, was was very kind of well liked and respected within the the Napoli dressing room, and uh, and yeah, and now is reunited with with Jorginho as well. So you've got a almost the spine of uh, of Sarri's Napoli team just without Sarri, without Mertens, without Insigne, but still, I think it's a it's a great two of signing. Them, yeah, two of them. I think it's a great yeah. signing, um, even though he's yeah, he's what thirty one. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of a left-sided centre-back, who uh, you know, I think has definitely you know, in, in a league which is, has become very good at exporting centre-backs, as we'll probably get to, because another high-profile one has left in the last few days. Um, he's uh, he's an outstanding uh, player and professional. All right, a delict who's, uh, as we've mentioned in the past, uh, been on his way to Bayern for a while, and it does look like that move is is now taking place. Matt, how, how do you feel about this Koulibaly move? 
Uh, well, it seems like it seems like a really good fit. Certainly, Thomas Tuchel's very enthused by it, and and it's an area of the pitch where Chelsea need to strengthen. Obviously, it, it, it's the, the fact that he's come on such a long contract at the age of thirty one is interesting, and I think maybe speaks to to the mistakes made by the previous regime in in not tying up deals for for Rudiger and allowing Christensen to leave for free, and and who knows what's happening with with Aspilicueta. Um So on the face of it, you know, fantastic. It's going to be interesting if Thomas Tuchel switches to a back four, which is is what is being rumoured um, to be happening for next season. Who is he going to play against? Is Thiago Silva going to be any good in the back four? Not convinced about that. Maybe that's where somebody like Kimpembe or Koundé uh, come in. But but the other thing, and, and there's a piece on The Athletic this morning about this, is the impact that it will have on Levi Colwell, who is somebody that Chelsea supporters are, are particularly keen to see having starred for Huddersfield last season. But but he has apparently said that if another centre-back comes in, in addition to Koulibaly, then he will look to leave Chelsea, which would be... Uh, a huge disappointment to a section of, of the Chelsea uh, fan base who are also waking up to the news that Armando Broya has apparently left Chelsea's uh, tour of America to come back to England, possibly to complete a move to West Ham. So it's interesting to see this with the with the, the Bowley Clear Lake ownership that they're going for stars by the look of it, or if not stars, established players. And, and that will have a knock-on effect for, for people like Broya and for Colwell and, and also for Billy Gilmore and Harvey Vale, with two players who've, who've now left the, the senior tour to go and join up, it looks like, with the development squad who are also in the USA. So interesting from that perspective. But in terms of getting Koulibaly, totally necessary, just what Chelsea needed. And, and as James says, because he knows Jorginho, he also obviously knows Edouard Mendy very well. And, and given the, the kind of character that he supposedly is, you wouldn't expect any kind of problems with him bedding in so it looks like a pretty stellar signing to go with Sterling try saying that three times fast uh, Vanch wants to know whether Chelsea should be in for an elite creator Vanch has got the XG figures for last season which saw Man City sorry about the rotary saw going off in the background uh, which saw Man City with an XG of 89 some things XGs I don't know Liverpool 89.2 Chelsea only 67.2 uh, surely a creator is the big issue, says Vanch. Yeah, but who who springs to mind who is available and, and who is going to come to Chelsea, I would say. Um, they they haven't had that kind of player for a couple of years. If you're expecting Jorginho to be that, doesn't look like he will be. Um, Thomas Ducal calls N'Golo Kante his team's superstar, his team's Mo Salah, so it doesn't look like he's going anywhere. So, I mean, ideally, yes, one of those players would be good, but if you can find one... Uh, who's available this summer, then then pass that on to Todd Bowley. Maybe Conor Gallagher? Maybe that's asking a bit much of him. I mean, they they bid for Rafinha and uh, yeah, there, there were links uh, with Usman Dembele as well. Ultimately, Barcelona have found a way to sign uh, Reese or re-sign both of these players. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm quite curious to see what Chelsea do since that they've missed out on Rafinha, whether they, they continue to persist in, in, in going for, for another player of that ilk. Maybe it's also a function of how the forward line plays um, and the movement and, you know, the opportunities they give to the midfield to effectively play them in. And I'm not sure that last season, you know, the Chelsea forward line was at its most efficient anyway. So perhaps maybe this season, Raheem Sterling will add another dimension to this, uh, which will make for midfield for midfielders to look easier to look for that uh, incisive ball. Yeah, and let's not forget last season, they spent half of it without Ben Chilwell and Rhys James, who are, are chief chance creators for the team. So yeah, exactly. I think Chilwell is a huge loss because I think the moment it clicked with him and Lukaku and then he got injured. And I thought there was a Tuchel did make the structural change to make that work. And then once Chilwell wasn't there, I think there wasn't another player who could kind of link effectively, you know, the, like th- that side of the pitch with the forward line. Mm. In the meantime, speaking of elite creators who have been on the market, how about Paolo Dybala? They could have gone in for him, but James Horncastle, after months and months, it now looks like the jewel has found a home. <laughs> this is very exciting yeah. news for you and me, if possibly... If, just us, it, but it is it is exciting news. Um, I think it it, it shows that uh, Dybala's market was was limited to Italy. Uh, the news is that he is going to Roma uh, on a on, on a three year deal. Uh, Does this which, mean Zaniolo's going? Do you think, or are they going to have the two of them playing together? I think Zaniolo will leave, um, even though he he captained Roma in their most recent friendly. Um, I think that's been quite clearly signposted. 
for a few months now. Um, so now that the delict money is coming in at Juventus, you know, I would I would expect another uh, another bit a bid from Juventus for for Zaniolo. Um, but yeah, we love Dybala as a player. He's uh, such a silky footballer. Um, and, you know, there's the prospect of him maybe taking the number 10 shirt, which nobody has worn since uh, Francesco Totti. Um, linking up with Tammy Abraham as well. Quite exciting. But I suppose on the flip side, you look at it and say, you know, Dybala's had a lot of uh, injuries, fitness issues over the last two years. He's 29. Can he play uh, from game week one to game week 38 without many interruptions I don't think he's going to become the next heavy Pastore um, which you know Pastore was signed for 28 million given a five-year deal highest paid player at the club was too injured to ever get on the pitch and was an albatross around Roma's neck I think this is this is better for Roma because Dybala's free um, he's he's on more or less the same wage but I think you know you, I think uh, it's 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 a better deal for Roma this one and you know Mourinho being the smooth operator himself being able to get on the phone and uh, and persuade him to to not go to Napoli uh, Napoli could offer Champions League football Inter have obviously kind of put signing Dybala on on standby whilst they uh, whilst they sell some players and also I think they weren't expecting to be able to sign Lukaku but no I mean it, I think what you want to see in in any league is 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 top players um, spread across. Uh, as many teams as possible, and and, and Dybala going to Roma um, certainly uh, leads you to believe that you know Roma can improve. Uh, they finished outside the top four, but they won the Conference League. Now it's about getting into the top four, and, and maybe Dybala is the player who can help them do that. Yeah, they won a trophy, and Jose's got some fresh ink. What do you, <laughs> yeah. what do you, what do you think of Jose's tattoo? I love it. I, I yeah. think it's you know, and also because he he says that nobody can. No one else can have a tattoo like that because he's the only one who's won the Champions League uh, twice, Europa League twice, and, and obviously the, the the newly inaugurated Conference League. But of course, anyone can go and get that tattoo if they want. Um, but uh, I think it's it's great. You, you you know that now. You know after after Mourinho winning the Conference League, he can do no wrong in my eyes. So um, so, so there you are. Mark Clattenburg did it better, didn't he? What did Klatz get? He's got his Champions League, uh, the Champions League trophy and the date of the, the final that he officiated. And it's um, it's much bigger than Jose's. Oh, was so. it all down his back? Is it like um, <laughs> yeah, the ref with the dragon tattoo kind of thing? But yeah. <laughs> it's on his arm so he can extend it out and show it you when he, um, when he shows the yellow card. He's got, he's, got, he's got all sorts. He's got one for the Euros, one for the Champions League. Um, okay, yeah. all right. De Rossi wins tattoos, though. Yeah, he's got the Teletubbies uh, as well, and uh, he's he's got the the stop the kind of stop sign, the tackle sign on his on his calf as well. It's mm. very good. All right, Sash. Did you want to say something about tattoos, Sash? No, I was actually going to ask about Rome, about Lazio. Um, oh, I, I just I was just looking at transfers, and I noticed Brentford have now got Thomas Strakosha on the free from Lazio. Do Lazio have a goalkeeper? They obviously don't have a Lucas anymore, who's gone back to Brazil. What are Lazio's plans for this season? <laughs> Lazio have done a lot of business so far. Uh, and they've also signed players from Rome, some of whom are Lazio fans, Alessio Romagnoli, uh, the, the former captain of Milan, who was, you know, he got to lift the Scudetto last year, but didn't really play much of a part because uh, Tamori and uh, Kalulu were the centre-backs. But there are you know, fans really excited about Romagnoli because uh, as much as Roma always have Romans who support Roma in the team. You know, Lazio haven't um, haven't had a Laziale, uh, high-profile one, unless you're counting Cataldi for uh, for a long time, probably since Nesta. Um, and uh, and so they've got uh, Cancellieri as well, who's who's a young under-21 international from, from Verona, also from Rome. They've signed one goalkeeper, uh, Maximiano, um, uh, who's I think comes from... Uh, from Granada, uh, Pepe Reina's gone. So they had no goalkeepers because <laughs> Strakosh had gone and Pepe Reina had gone. Um, they tried to they tried to sign Canisecchi, who's the Italy under twenty one international, who of course comes through Atalanta as part of the Cremonese side, which got promoted uh, and will be in Syria next year. But he had to have shoulder surgery. But um, there's certainly a feeling that they've been more proactive 
um, than than they have in other years. Um, and they still haven't sold Milinkovic Savage because Milinkovic Savage is the player who will never be sold. So, yeah, it's it's interesting, but it's it's a, I suppose it's about making this team less of an Inzaghi team and even more of a Sarri team after Sarri's mm. first year. Okay. Well, more City ad chat in a second or two. But speaking of spreading all the good players around, Man City have been disseminating bits of squad all over the Premier League. Uh, Alexander Zinchenko now joining Gabriel Jesus at Arsenal. Uh, what kind of deal is this for Arsenal? It's going to be interesting to see where he plays, isn't it? Because he, he plays as a midfielder for Ukraine, doesn't he? But you'd, mm. you'd think that actually Arsenal needs some cover for Kieran Tierney because he seems to be injured an awful lot of the time. So whether he's coming in as a, as a backup to Tierney or a, or a midfielder, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think, I think with yeah, Zinchenko's utility, um, I think at left-back last season, he was when he played, I think he was seen as a bit of a weakness in, in that City team. We haven't seen him in midfield. Um, he's played really well in midfield internationally. Of course, he's come through as a midfielder as well. I mean, that's what he got him spotted in the first place. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see what... Um, I mean, obviously, Arteta has, has, has seen him uh, and knows uh, what he can do. But if Zinchenko ends up in, the, in midfield, I think Premier League could be better for it. OK. He's only 25. Remarkable. Jed Spence. <laughs> Jed Spence, Matt. Yeah. It's one of those, I, I, what, how I am um, reconciling myself with it is that it's like a holiday romance where it, it's a really good thing in, in the, under the sun and, and on the sand. And then, you know, if you get back and you meet up in the cold November of England and suddenly they don't seem as glamorous or attractive, maybe that's how this is going to go. Um, okay. What was her name? Matt? What, who was she? <laughs> her name was Jed. Uh, no, Jed Spence was absolutely <laughs> tremendous for Forrest last season. He was a total joy to watch. Um, wonderful player. And, and I think he realises that, that Forrest were great for him because he was, you know, kicked out by Neil Warnock at Middlesbrough at the start of the season. And he's ended up starting this season as a Champions League player. Fascinating to see if he starts as well or whether he's he's back up um, because he's much better going forward than he is defending. And obviously, if you're going to be a Conte wing back, you really need to do both. So interested to watch him being coached by Antonio Conte for, for a couple of seasons and, and seeing how that brings him on. But he's a player with massive potential, definitely. OK, uh, he's joined Spurs, as you were uh, pointing out there. Kingy, on the subject of people playing... Full back, wing back, etc. Ask how much sense does the rumoured victim mosification of Lucas Mora make? This is something people have well, spotted in Tottenham's preseason. I mean, this is something that Conte has already done um, with, like, for example, Ivan Perisic, um, because uh, I remember his first season with Inter. He was wondering, okay, I don't play four through three. I don't have a, uh, a system here with a winger. Um, and can Perisic either be a wing-back or can he be a second striker? And, you know, after having a pre-season with him, Conte decided he couldn't. And so Perisic went to Bayern Munich and promptly won the treble um, and then came back and played wing-back and was a big part in them uh, winning the league. I think what this says about Conte is just how attack-minded he is as a coach because he wants wingers as wing-backs. And, you know, he wants his players to be able to score goals um, and create chances for, for the two strikers. Um, there aren't many teams in world football that play two strikers. Uh, a lot of them have a lone front man and a couple of wingers and a, and a, and a, and a, and a 10 off them or a, a midfielder who pushes up. Um, Conte likes to have two strikers, two wingers as wingbacks, sometimes a number 10 as well, a centre-back who steps into midfield. You know he's a very attack-minded coach, and I think uh, experimenting with Mora in this in this position and uh, and being persuaded he can do it is is more evidence of that. Do you think Perisic has a big part to play this season, or is he going to be more of a sub? Does he have the legs to play wing back in the Premier League? Cliche question. <laughs> I mean, he was he was described as a uh, as a, a decathlete, um, you know, in Italy, uh, in that you know he was someone who who had endurance. Um, it's also compared to a horse as well. <laughs> you know, um, I, I think if there's, if, if there's any doubt about Perisic, it's not his athletic ability. I think he's one of the, the, the fittest um, players. Certainly was one of the fittest players in, in, in Serie A. Um, could go from, the, from kickoff to final whistle um, with no change in his kind of, very little change in his, uh, 
his energy levels um, and was you know was was arguably the best player in City A in the second half of last season. So um, you know I would say that he is he's coming to start. I think um, Reguilón, who was obviously signed from Sevilla when Sevilla's team beat Antonio Conte's inter team in the Europa League final, uh, yeah, Reguilón, I think stayed back um, from this this tour to to Korea. Um, so there's this. Yeah, he is injured apparently, but um, I would I would say Perisic immediately. As someone who knows Antonio Conte inside out, and Conte can basically depend on and plug in, and you know he doesn't need a preseason to know what Conte wants from him. Conte, I would say Perisic if he's fit is starting. Hmm. All right, we'll have more transfer talk, some Barcelona business, Lewandowski and that. Also, Cesc Fabregas going where? That'll be a little bit later on because next up going to hear about that new look Man United. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Listen, it's the 18th of July as we sit here, wrapped up warm. Today, of course, is the 20-year anniversary of the 18th of July 2002. What happened that day? Well, Dennis Wise broke Callum Davidson's cheekbone in two places during Leicester's ill-fated pre-season tour of Finland. There'd been a game of cards. Apparently, though, the altercation didn't take place immediately after the game of cards, but rather Dennis Wise attacked the Scottish defender as he lay in his bed in his hotel room. In Finland. It finished, excuse me, Dennis Wise's Leicester career. They put him on a plane home and fired him immediately and he lost uh, in the region of three million in lost wages. And now he's brokering deals for Cesc Fabregas. Quite a, Is he? Quite a turnaround, yeah. He's Is the, Dennis he, Wise? He works for Como, doesn't he? He works Dennis for Wise. Como, yeah. Dennis Wise works for Como? Mm, yeah. I think he's the chairman. Yeah. He is, and there are some elements of QPR involved, or <laughs> ex-QPR. Mark Bircham, I think, is, uh, is involved there. Uh, I think the people who run Como are some brothers from Indonesia, so it's it's quite an international project. Remember, they had Jack Wilshire over um, to do, uh, well, just to have the opportunity to train with them uh, at one stage last season. Um, but, yeah, this is... Another level. I saw someone asking um, if Cesc had had the best kind of uh, lifestyle of any football player in terms right. of the cities yeah. that he's played in, uh, with it being Barcelona, London, Barcelona, Monaco, Monaco mm. and Como. Oh, Como now. Mm. Como slash Milan, if he wants. Because, right. Um, um, so so uh, so yeah, it's, it, it sounds like a fairly formidable residence CV. Right. He's 35 years old, says Fabregas now, uh, Como in Sidia B. Crikey. Callum Davison, by the way, the, the yes. other half of, uh, of that fracar, right. uh, very promising manager, won both Scottish domestic cups in 2021 with St. Johnston. Wow. Exactly a Check out his team. tattoo. We might, yeah, we might hear more of him in the next couple of years. Nice one. Very good. Of course, uh, Leicester have had a chequered. A chequered history with their pre-season tours. La Manga, only a couple of years after the Dennis Wise cheek bone-breaking incident. And in 2015, the goodwill-generating tour of Thailand, which, well, didn't. But led to them winning the the, 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 the title, of course, because they had to fire three players, Nigel Pearson's son and Nigel Pearson himself then kind of went, I think, you know, fell on his sword and, and in came Claudio and boom, the rest is history. But that's them and pre-season tours, but what about the ones going on right now? Who's cooking up the on-this days of the future? Manchester United's uh, tour of Australia and Thailand appears to be going very well at the moment. They had a, a 4-0 victory, famously over Liverpool in Thailand. They've now added to that a 4-1 against the nominatively non-determinously named Melbourne victory. Uh, next up, they'll be playing Crystal Palace. That's Tuesday in Melbourne. If you're in Melbourne and fancy that. Uh, but uh, the one person who is in the locale is Laurie Whitwell. And he joins us now. Laurie, thank you so much. What time of day is it for you? It is quarter to 7pm. But it's been a kind of slightly odd tour with the Bangkok element and then travelling lots of distances. So I don't really know what time it is, really. <laughs> oh, OK. But in a sense, you do. 
I'm sure. Yes. Uh, Man United has certainly uh, earned some headlines over here, not least for that victory over Liverpool, but just the approach that Ten Hag seems to have brought to the team immediately. Uh, Laurie, are the banter years over? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it has been encouraging, hasn't it? We, I guess we've been here before with uh, decent pre-season performances and then you know, United have gone and lost you know, 1-0 to Swansea or whoever it was on the opening day. But um, I do kind of get a sense that Ten Hag has been able to um, convey what he wants to his players and, and they seem to be responding to it. Um, you know, the open training session that we saw over in Bangkok was really educative in terms of how he is as a, as a manager. You know, he's very much on the grass and, and gets involved in the sessions and, and corrects players when he thinks that they're not doing the right things. And then obviously, as we saw against Liverpool, there was that high press involved. Um, there was David De Gea coming off his line and out of his box to kind of try and sweep up and that'll be an interesting one to see how that develops. But um, it, it was, you know, encouraging signs, albeit, as you say, two friendlies. Mm. But a lot of the things that I guess a lot of supporters had been wanting to see from the team, that a lot of, a lot of uh, square pegs in square holes, things like Sancho playing mm. on the right, Rashford back on the left. What do you see as the, the big changes that, that Ten Hag is going to bring to the team? I think a clarity of thought, probably. Um, you know, he's obviously got a very defined way of playing and he does, you know, adapt, I suppose, to the players. You know, he, he says that, that the players will ultimately dictate what kind of uh, formation, I suppose, or, or exact style that he wants to play. But um, generally, the, the idea is, is, you know, hard work, hard running. You know, players have certainly said that in training, um, the the lengths uh, that they've gone to, the, the yards, uh, sprinting, etc., have been um, harder than they're, they're used to, which I'm sure will please fans. Um uh, but you just, just kind of sense that he has a clear idea of what he wants. You know, he's had success with Ajax and he's, you know, absolutely determined and has belief in himself that he can do that at Manchester United. Mm. Well, one of the reasons, I guess, that he's able to field the team in that fashion is that there's no Cristiano Ronaldo right now. What's, what's the feeling mm. about how that story is going to pan out? Yeah, it's a kind of confusing one, isn't it, really? I mean, um, you know, he, he's obviously expressed that he wants to leave the club, um, but then again, where does he go? You know, with Chelsea now actually ruling themselves out, that seemed the most realistic, uh, certainly from a, a, a club point of view. Whether or not United would have sold, I don't know. But, but yes, yeah, so it does seem like maybe he'll have to continue at Manchester United and it'd be interesting when he comes back into the, you know, Carrington. There's still no clarity exactly on if he's going to turn up, you know, when they get back to Manchester, um, which is kind of crazy. Um, obviously, you know, there's the... Um, personal reasons that they've also been expressed, but the, the kind of wider context, as we know, is is that he's you know training over at Portugal's Lisbon facility, um, and he has designs on getting a Champions League club elsewhere. I mean, Eric ten Hag the whole way through has been very um, positive about Ronaldo in terms of his opening press conference where he said he would be very much leading his team at the pivotal point of attack um, even to more recently you know he's, he's reiterated that um, today with us we had, we had a sit down with him and um, his um, sort of full belief was that he'd be part of his team um, so yeah we'll see I mean whether that's enough for Ronaldo whether you know there's a, an element of putting pressure on Manchester United to make some signings you know quicker and, and get them closed I, d- I don't know um, if that was part of his uh, sort of thinking process but it has kind of it, it overshadowed certainly the opening um, sort of few days of the tour oddly he's kind of not been as much spoken about now I guess because it's you know he's not you know part of his side so you know why, why would you need to keep bringing it up um, but I, I guess ultimately he he does need to find a long-term solution because you know Ronaldo's 37 and you know one more year with a, an option I suppose as, as an extra one but um, I, I do as you mentioned James I think you know the fact that you've got Rashford on the left Sancho on the right even Marshall up top I mean loath to say that he could actually lead the way but that kind of a front three, you know, has promise at least. And certainly if you give them confidence, you know, I think Sancho and Rashford certainly suffered for confidence last year and Ten Hag spoke about wanting to get that back into his players. So to those guys at full pelt, you know, you think they could do something in the Premier League. Mm. Among the other positive stories for Man United supporters is the arrival of Lissandro Martinez, which now seems to be sorted out with Ajax, uh, who will be a major asset in all sorts of potential positions at the back, I guess. Uh, Laurie, in general, you've seen a lot of fresh starts, I guess, and wisely, because it's pre-season and that, you've been quite guarded. But do you get a feeling that this time United have got it right, that they they are going to add up to the sum of their parts and more? Mm, I can totally see why Manchester United gave Eric Ten Hag the job now. I wasn't totally sure when they announced it. You know, I sort of thought Mauricio Pochettino's Premier League pedigree um, should have counted for, for a lot. Um, but at the same time, 
you know, when you're actually face to face with these guys, then you can get a real sense of, of what they might bring to the role. And clearly he is someone who believes in himself, has, you know, astute ideas um, about, you know, how he can then transmit that to the players, get them to understand it and buy into it. And also, yeah, the, the open training session was, was very educative. You could see how he bounced off Steve McLaren and Mitchell van der Gaag and, you know, bringing in the press ups and, um, you know, stepping in and, and telling players what he wanted. I mean, listen, again, the press-ups could become, you know, this kind of the magical ketchup that he bounds in the canteen and, you know, it's kind of doesn't really actually go anywhere ultimately. But for the, at the same token, it seemed like a good atmosphere. And I, I, you get a real sense that he's got confidence and as long as he's got time and, and can get those players in that he wants, um, then you do feel that he, he, he can be a success, certainly more so than, than Solskjaer and Ranić, I think. All right. Well, Crystal Palace up next on Tuesday in Melbourne. You'll be discussing that in the excellently named Talk of the Devils podcast out mm-hmm. on Wednesday, I imagine. That's the one, yes. So news of Man United Palace and whether this bold new start continues its extremely positive direction in Talk of the Devils out on Wednesday. Uh, Laurie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. James, you've seen Lissandra Martinez in action. How big a signing is that? Well, interesting you bring up size, James, because uh, he's not the biggest uh, player. And, you know, some people have questioned whether... Can he hack it in the Premier League with mm. uh, all these crosses that keep coming in when, in actual fact, uh, Premier League teams don't tend to cross these days? And, you know, he's someone who can play in midfield. Uh, I think, in fact, went from being a midfield player to playing centre-back, very much in keeping with modern trends um, because centre-backs these days, the old-school ones, have gone completely out of fashion now that Chiellini has gone to LAFC uh, and everyone has to be a midfield player. Um, and so he will be, uh, I think, integral to what United do on the Ten Hag in the quote-unquote build-up, the uh, costruzione, the, uh, the, 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 the playing out from the back. Um, and is a left footer. I think you know Varane is two-footed, but sort of naturally right-footed. But I think they were they were missing someone who who's a lefty. Um, we've got a very good article from a while ago from Tom Warville now of. Uh, now of the uh, Red Bull Leipzig uh, data team uh, about why left-sided centre-backs are so in demand and so important. And uh, Why are they? Uh, well, it's, it's just about um, trajectories, angles, geometries, James, that okay. you know, having a lefty on that side of the pitch, you know, the options it gives you, it's something that City in particular lacked when Imeric Laporte uh, went down and got injured in the uh, in the season that Liverpool went on to win the league, and they swiftly went out and bought, bought a couple of lefties. Mm. Um, so it's preferable, I think, in in most positions to have a someone who's uh, natural, uh, naturally footed on the side that they're playing, unless you're a winger um, or whatever. Because we've seen a lot of uh, a lot of that go inverted in a Top yeah. Gun style um, over over the years. Right. Um, have but, you seen um, the new Top Gun? Yeah. I have. Um, I cried during Top Gun. Did you? Yeah, Yeah. I did. Um, All right. uh, You blub quite easily in movies, though. We. um... (laughs) Oh, what? After the James Bond as well? James Bond. Yeah. 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 Did you not not cry during Top Gun? I haven't seen it yet, but I really want to. James, yeah. yeah, I I know. I've been so busy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Everyone will move on, yeah? Uh, Barcelona. A lot of people asking. Here's one of them, Richard Holgate, for a broke club, Barcelona, doing remarkably well in the transfer window. How? Is it another mockery of FFP? Barca remind me of doing my fantasy team this time. <laughs> you know, where you put all the players in and then you realise, ah, actually, I have to take two players out here. Otherwise, right. I, I just can't register my team. But if you could uh, sell, like, say, 25% of your future squad value for the next 25 years and then bring in those players you'd be doing what Barcelona have done they've they've so far I think sold 10% of the next 25 years worth of TV revenue and they're looking to sell another 15% they're hoping to make about half a billion euros from that they have picked up 300 million euros for selling off 49% of their marketing and licensing company and that's how effectively they are poised to be a functioning club containing the likes of Rafinha, Frank Kessie, Andres Christensen and Robert Lewandowski. I should mention that Kessie and Christensen haven't actually, they haven't, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They Oh, right, they haven't been registered yet because they haven't got all the financial ducks in a row. But it looks like that they're going to 
they're going to make all of this happen. Huh? How excited, Matt, Sasha, James, are you to see Lewandowski playing for Barcelona with Rafinha on one side and Lord knows who on the other? I'm excited to see how long it's going to take them to burn through this, like 800 million what, a season. What are they going to do next year? You know, sell <laughs> the future further and further forward. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, it it feels like it is not like the, the most star-studded team you think compared to the two to, to years of the past. But I I think with Barcelona, the problem of reputation and financial stability is going to have to come to, into it at some point because. What they do in this season about these ridiculous renegotiations of contracts, you know, some players will take it, like Dembele, uh, but I mean, the situation with De Jong is just extremely uncouth. And, you know, at some point, um, serious players probably will stop dealing with them. Um, I mean, look, if it comes to next summer and they are short of cash again, what are they going to say to Lewandowski? Um, and it's, I mean, for, for all the things they might show on the pitch, I think it's off the pitch that probably Barcelona are the most interesting at the moment. Yeah, I also think as much as our attention has been drawn to uh, these big signings of, of Rafinha, of Lewandowski, they're re-signing Dembele to a new contract. And, you know, Sasha was talking about how De Jong has been treated and what you make of that over this summer. But, you know, remember what was going on with Dembele in, in, in January. That will not be a cheap extension, even on reduced terms. You know, you have to you have to think of contract extensions in the same framework as, as transfer fees these days. Um, they're very expensive to do. You know, as, as, as e if you look at what Liverpool, for example, are paying to keep Mo Salah, that is as big an operation for them as signing Darwin Nunes. And so, yeah, I, I, I think more generally, the, 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 the financial state of the game outside the Premier League is very depressing. That a club like Barcelona is having to mortgage its future just to be competitive um, I mean they don't have to do that um, you know they could settle into being a, a team that finishes 15-20 points off of Real Madrid and you know sometimes struggle to qualify for the Champions League but you know their history and tradition will not uh, will not allow that fans will allow that around the world um, but I mean you look at you look at Italy as well um, you know for the most part Deals have been done for free. You know, Juventus, Pogba, Di Maria, free. You look at Inter, Mkhitaryan, free. Lukaku is alone. Roma, Matic, Dybala, free. Um, there's no money uh, in, in European football unless you do what Real Madrid has done, which is sell off a stake in, in your future match day revenue from the new Bernabeu. Uh, or you do what Barcelona are doing, which is you know, sell off various different stakes of your business rather than say, let's get rid of this socialist model and basically let someone buy the club. Yeah, there's something fundamentally wrong with the financial state of affairs of, of European football, which is chasing the Premier League and how well that's been managed as an institution for the last 30 years and chasing mm. these state, state wealth clubs, um, mm. which have been pretty much allowed to do whatever they want. If they had like a Super League, I'm thinking that would... <laughs> That could resolve a lot of. The well, problems. I think what I think there are there's there's a lot of merit to um, some of the points raised by the Super League. Uh, yeah, obviously the concept in They've its, its launch. They got to you James, have they? No, but the, the 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 concept itself was flawed, and you know I think right. was was rightly decried. But in terms of sustainability um, and a new financial model for for the game, I think there's a lot of merit there. However, mm. Mm. I do think what Barcelona are doing this summer kind of makes it less credible that's one of the kind of really interesting well if you're you're into this kind of thing interesting things about this summer is that you know you can't cry about a lack of sustainability and that sort of thing when you are essentially going about your transfer business in that in that manner i would say indeed all right listen one last transfer question for now it's from q who says can we get a quick briefing on monza <laughs> monza who got promoted to city uh, with the dream team of Silvio Berlusconi and Adriano Galliani in charge of them, the people who made Milan, Milan. They've got Pessina. I've seen them linked with the card. He says, Q, how's Uncle Silvio getting on? Well, Uncle Silvio is in fine fettle uh, at the moment. Um, 
You know, I mean, Monza, I, I just mentioned that in Serie A, the top clubs aren't really spending any money. Um, mm. I think that will change now that Delic's gone, Koulibaly's gone. Um, I think there's, there's finally going to be some money to spend. But up until now, the only ones who have been, really, have been Monza. Um, with, you know, Berlusconi saying, look, I'm not content with getting this club to Serie A for the first time in its history. Um, I'm not content with staying up next year. You know, I want Champions League. I want the Scudetto. And I think um, his chief executive, Adriano Galliani, has had to sort of calm him down a little bit and say, look, you know, our objective is going to be 10th place. But mm. yeah, they've signed Pessina, who obviously was part of Italy's um, European Championship winning team. Um, they've got Stefano Sensi, who for the first four months of uh, of playing under Conte at Inter was, was really exciting to watch. Injuries have kind of got in the way for him. They've signed Andrea Ranocchia, formerly of Man City, uh, Ma not Man City, formerly of Norwich City. Um, big difference between those two cities, I suppose. Hull City as well. And Cranio, Luomo Cranio, the, the um, uh, Spider-Man goalkeeper from, from Cagliari. And yes, they have been linked with Icardi, who PSG want to kind of uh, get rid of. They were linked with Dybala at one stage, which was, uh, which was kind of funny. But yeah, I mean, it's... It's entertaining to see Galliani back and wheeling and dealing and, you know, sort of it's too hot for him to have his suit and yellow mustard tie on at the moment. Mm. So he's kind of walking around in the kind of white trousers and a, and a very big open, open neck white shirts. It's, it's great if you're, a, if, you, if you're a nostalgist for, for those days when those two were doing all kinds of things in Syria. But, but James, what's the budget for the, for, for the club? I mean, how much can they spend on transfers and wages per season? And uh, like, is there FFP implications to all of this? FFP, come on. Ah. Um, no, I, I, I think, you know, Milan had become a, a burden for, for Fininvest, which was the, the kind of um, Berlusconi holding company. Um, in that you know the sort of operating cost of, of running AC Milan was so big every year you know you th you're thinking like 250 million just for the salary uh, the wage bill um, and you know that was burning a big hole in the company's pockets and certainly they felt they couldn't compete anymore with the likes of PSG and Man City um, because you're no longer going with titans of industry but states Monza they took over in Serie C uh, so third division very small operating costs a uh, very yeah, sort of small wage bill, and so that's given them a lot more freedom to basically invest, yeah, make them a you know a high salary team for Serie B when they got up there along with Parma, um, and they've just got a bit more agility, a bit more um, upward mobility when it comes to um, you know what cost they're taking on and and and, and what they're spending. Um, they do have a relatively large stadium for a club that's coming up and has never been in Serie A before in a very wealthy part of Italy, Lombardy, most wealthy region um, in Italy. And they've got, you know, probably one of the wealthiest backers as well. So, so yeah, it's, you know, in terms of FFP, I mean, as much as there's this debate in Italy about this liquidity index, um, which is their, their version of FFP, you know, yeah, Berlusconi is just, just going for it. And, and, uh, and why not? And why not? Um, yeah. Brilliant. All right, I'm really looking forward to seeing how they get on. That's enough transfers and related news for now. Uh, let's finish off today's show next up with another of our favourite World Cups. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. We're off to the Lowry in Manchester for a special season preview live podcast affair. That's on August the 9th, if you fancy it. Head to thelowry.com for tickets. It'll be me, Michael Cox, Duncan Alexander and Julian Laurens on stage together. They'll be fighting, there'll be banter, all sorts of stuff. Uh, if you're following the Athletics' best ever Premier League performances, we're up to number 16 today, 16 out of 50. I can't wait to see who's number one. It's a bit like advent calendars back in the day, you know, before they put chocolate in it and you were just... Opening up to anyway, uh, today number 16 is that amazing Mo Salah performance against Man City from all the way back in the mists of last October. Sash, I'm not going to ask you about how happy you are that Mo Salah's staying. Instead, I'm going to say to you, Sasha Gurin, of what was your favorite World Cup? I'm going to go for 1982, James. Why, Sasha? Slightly before my time mm. uh, and growing up, I didn't really understand much about it. Specifically, I didn't really understand what on earth the Soviet team did. 
and it took me many, many years and lots of reading to actually get to a point where you can actually figure out what the Soviets were doing, uh, i.e. they went to the World Cup with three managers, uh, which was not a genius move. And also in 82, I mean, one of the reasons I like it is because of the Soviet kit, uh, a very iconic shirt made by Adidas. Like, like oh, this. yeah, that is nice. Sasha's uh, just held it up. Just to let you know, it's essentially, it's, it's a kind of uh, white and red. It's a white base, but with a red pinstripe on it and CCCP written on the front. Back in the USSR. Yeah. Definitely back in the USSR. And the thing is, I caught the tail end of some of those players' careers. And for me as well, 82 World Cup, especially given what's going on now, I think becomes more poignant because it was a World Cup with a lot of Spartak Moscow, Russian, Ukrainian, uh, Dynamo Kiev interest, and also Dynamo Tbilisi. And of course, on top of all that, you have the color, you have the stories like Northern Ireland, you have the amazing Italy performances. And also on top of this, you have, you have Brazil. And initially... Like growing up as well, you think, ah, Brazil loses um, because they didn't win the whole thing. But literally, it seems to me that the only only thing that stood between them and greatness, and these are the fine margins, was the uh, the third Rossi goal. Because up to that stage, and I was rewatching the clips again, I mean, that, that midfield could do everything. But also what's really striking is the quality of long-range shooting from Brazil. Half that team could hit the ball from 25, 30 yards. For opening two games, four goals are from outside the box. The way they peppered off in that, you know, quarterfinal third comes in that game is, is absolutely incredible as well. I think Zoff does really well. And then you remember that Zoff was 40 years old. You know, I'm 41. Things out there on the pitch seem to be happening very, very quickly. He was keeping up with like the best in the world and went on to win the World Cup. And so, so many, many stories and, you know, overlaying this with the Soviet dysfunction makes it an absolutely fascinating World Cup for me. Yeah, it was a curious World Cup in terms of the format, two group stages. So in actual fact, as you say, in inverted commas, quarterfinal, that, that was the, the final group stage game for Italy and Brazil. Brazil just needed a draw, but weren't able to get it thanks to the genius of Paolo Rossi and that amazing Dino Zoff save right at the death. You had him at 40, you had Beppe Bergami coming in at 18 years of age. And 82, is this all new to you, Matt? You would have been minus what at this point? Uh, I would have been World Cup uh, three or four months, I would say. Okay, yeah. right. So, so not totally conscious of what was happening in the World Does Cup, it, but it certainly... Is it an iconic tournament for you? No, it's not. And, it, it, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> that that sounds that sounds brutal, but it, it just isn't. I, I was I was looking back at it yesterday, and and, and other than the kind of Tardelli celebration, I, mm. there's nothing that has particularly and 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 Battiston Schumacher. There's nothing that has particularly <sighs> stuck in my mind from even you know learning about that tournament afterwards. Uh, England had a great kit, better than better than um, the Soviet one. Sasha would say with that. Uh, the admiral number, remember, with right. the kind of blue stripe, then the red stripe across the top of it. But yeah, other than that, this totally passed me by. Yesterday was the first time I learned there was two group stages, which sounds ridiculous. Um, <laughs> Bonick's hat trick against Belgium. Bonick, who just moved to Juventus and announced himself on the world stage. Poland finishing third. Anschluss, the disgrace of Gijon. Yeah. In a week that sees Germany take on Austria, topically enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the game that was wasn't a game and, and, and forced FIFA to, to play, as you might think was logical, all the final games of the group stages at the same time. Yeah, I suppose that's one regulation that was changed. I think there was something about uh, unsporting the behaviour and violent conduct also for how Claudio Gentile mm. um, essentially marked uh, Diego Maradona out of the game uh, when Italy played Argentina in the, in, the, in the second group stage. So I think there was some regulations that were brought into effect on the back of that. Uh, and of course, Zico would complain and still complains um, that it was a kind of uh, time of innocence lost for Brazil, um, that, that World Cup, which they, they never really came back from because they realized that if they were to win the World Cup again, they had to be a more conservative, more defensive nation um, and that's kind of how they won the World Cup and beat Italy in the final in 1994. Um, and he's always kind of held Italy accountable uh, for that, even though Italy played, certainly in the latter stages of that tournament, some magnificent football and had a very, very talented team with Bruno Conti, a.k.a. Marizico, um Tardelli, uh, Antonioni, um, you know, we talked about Paolo Rossi, who himself had been out of the game for a couple of years on the back of the 
the ban in the for the in the betting scandal that had taken place, and uh, and yeah, you had you know flying wingbacks like Cabrini, and and of course you know the most famous goal in the final. You know you have I think what Gaetano Shirea and Beppe Bergami exchanging passes in West Germany's penalty box uh, before setting up Tardelli. Uh, to score, we recreated that goal on uh, BT Sport with uh, with, with Tardelli. With, with Tardelli himself. Uh, Honigstein made me uh, play a German, uh, which I've never really uh, ever forgiven him for. Um, but uh, magnificent goal, and it kind of just goes to show how intrepid Italy could be in that tournament. So take that, Zika. Bergomi, Shirea, Tardelli. It's an overreaction, um, and again, it's maybe it's a South American thing because I remember Argentina in '58 went to the World Cup playing this this beautiful football, got laughed at, and went cynical for about 20 years. But because looking at the content of the games by Brazil, I mean, mm. even the opening game against Soviet Union, who came late and didn't adapt very well, and you know, if you speak to the players, the last 15 minutes for Soviet Union was just like they, they were like in a sauna, plus 37 degrees, I think, in Seville, 100% humidity. But Brazil absolutely destroyed them. They played them off the park. Russians, well, Russian Soviet team kind of managed to get more and more squashed into the box, for which they were told off later. But they couldn't do anything. And then two astonishing goals. I mean, all right, New Zealand perhaps doesn't count, but then they considered an early goal against um, uh, Scotland. And they go on to absolutely uh, destroy them. Uh, the game against Argentina, they played them off the park. And arguably uh, against Italy, I mean, there were chances galore. Um, mm arguably both sides, but I don't know, looking at the content of the actual football, and you think, right, okay, there's one goal that decides this, um, Barossi, and to just think, oh yeah, we have to completely change the whole style, the whole way we play to be more serious, to be this defensive, I think I think it's a massive overreaction, because if you look at it from the content of the actual, actual football, right. uh, it, it's incredible, Brazil team. Yeah, they won playing free-flowing football in 1970 and it's not like... I wonder if that's what genuinely happened or it's just that a different generation of players came through with different attributes and their football reflected reflected that, although, you know, football had changed that. So much, Matt, that you need to go back and check out from 82. Well, yeah, and, and just, just thinking, uh, our Northern Irish listeners, in particular, yeah. Jerry Armstrong would, would probably be quite cross if we didn't mention that they beat Spain, finished above them in the first yeah. group stage. Still Billy Hamilton, he's got past Tendilio. And Armstrong! Northern Ireland have scored through Jerry Armstrong! You brushed off England there, but they... They were undefeated in that tournament. They were only one Kevin Keegan missed header because his his perm was too bubbly, <laughs> away from making it through the, themselves. And who knows where they could have ended up? But uh, yeah, you you have checked out Schumacher on Battiston, and that is something that is hard to unsee once you've once you've seen it. Also, I mean, Italy go and win the thing, and this, I mean, it, it is the most cherished World Cup, I think, for Italy, way more than 2006, just because you mentioned the Calcio Messi, the, the whole backdrop to that. But just such an innocent time of them all playing cards on the on the plane back home. But that, that quote from Paolo Rossi, who finished top scorer, six goals, scored in the final. And he says, when the final whistle blew, I looked around me and I felt bitter inside. I was never going to live a moment like this again. Never again in my life would I have this sensation. And it was already disappearing there. It had already gone. What an extraordinary thing to feel when you've just won the World Cup. And and yeah, in contrast with uh, Marco Tardelli, obviously his, his iconic <laughs> goal celebration, he said, I was born with that scream inside me. That was just the moment that it came out. Yeah. What a thing, huh? If I may, uh, maybe this might go into another piece because obviously that was a really lovely way to finish that. But I'm sure listeners would like to find out why Soviet Union had three managers. Oh, yeah. Um, so Konstantin Beskov was a Spartak Moscow manager, ex-Dinamo uh, Moscow man. Um, and then he, what he noticed is that he basically had a bit of difficulty getting Dinamo Tbilisi and Dinamo Kiev players, re- getting them released. Uh, you know, for the national team. So maybe it wasn't quite his idea, but anyway, a suggestion went to the committee of sport that uh, he'd like to get those managers along, uh, Lobanovsky and Ahalkatsi, who is the uh, Tbilisi manager, along to help him 
Uh, and to be honest, those two guys weren't particularly keen. And Ahal Katsi basically just went, well, I'm here if you want anything, but I'm just going to sit in the background. And so what Beskov wanted was basically for the older players to be focused, to be there, to be there on time, you know, to have no issues with the clubs. But what ended up happening in the end it feels that the Soviet <clears throat> approach to games ended up being more muddled because Spartak played with very much with the ball, head held high, you know, that sort of approach. Dinamo Kiev, very much a pressing side. Dinamo Tbilisi, very much a very expressive side, you know, one of those fantasista teams um, of, of the 70s, whose main player, David Kipiani, wasn't picked for the, you know, pre-squad of 40 post-injury and basically quit football. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely astonishing. Uh, a man at the age of 30 uh, just, just makes an emotional decision and just never plays again. And he would have been one of the stars of the World Cup even though at the age of 30. So Soviet Union end up going through all these games where they're kind of hanging on. They're reliant on Scotland making mistakes. They're not quite there. They don't quite score enough goals to beat Belgium. Um, and in the final game, they have to beat Poland. And this was actually, I was thinking about this when I was watching the Denmark um, game against Spain at the Women's Euros. They had to win this game. Why are you set up so defensively? And I was speaking to Gavrilov, who was um, like the, um, the falsest of false nines, if you like. He was the deep-line playmaker for Spartak Moscow and like the nucleus of this team. And he went, well, we, we, we started that final game with... Um, only four attacking players, if you like. Why did we have six defenders? We had to score. And therefore, the suggestion is that perhaps Lobanovsky's approach won over Beskov for this final game, even though all the players maintain, you know, they just did what the coaches told them. And then, as would happen, after a Soviet failure at the World Cup, they'll go back and there's this party committee meetings, the managers get sacked, and this cycle happens after the Soviet Union failed to be successful in every tournament. But at the same time, it was... It was an attempt to create something. It could have been absolutely beautiful, like, you know, 1% chance. And in the mm. end, it all fell down of difference of style, difference of opinion. And in the end, a team that was technically very good just couldn't decide what style it was supposed to play. And this is why also for me, it is just, it's a fascinating sort of human study as well, because there is so many big personalities and so many great players and how this could have been probably Soviet Union's finest hour. And it just wasn't. All right. Nice kit, though. So there's that. Anyway, if you are curious, um, perhaps Sasha will write a nice long piece about that. Uh, there is, if you want to know more about Italy's World Cup triumph in 82, there's an actual golazzo about that dating from March 2019, but still very much out there. I fear, though, that that might be it for today's Totally Football show. So, Sasha, many thanks for that, James and Matt as well. Producer Charlie back with us. Listener, thank you for being along for the ride. We return on Thursday. Lord knows what will be in that show, but it'll be fun. Do hope that you stay safe and fresh in the intervening days, and we'll catch up with you soon on the Totally Football Show. Cheerio. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.